This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 506, and we welcome Dr. Claudette Hanks-Reichel. She's uh, with the Housing Resilient, uh, we're going to talk about building science and housing resilience, bringing research to practice. Before we get started, we want to thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. And our newest sponsors are the RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders, learn more at restorationindustry.org, and AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. All right, let's turn it over to the treat, the Z-Man for today's trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for being first to identify affidavit as the legal term for a voluntary statement made under oath. The IQ radio trivia question for today, Friday, June 8, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. How many graduates were in LSU's College of Agriculture's first graduating class? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, Dr. Claudia Hanks, Claudette, I'm sorry, Hanks Reichel is professor and extension housing specialist with Louisiana State University's Ag Center. She serves as the director of La House Resource Center, a public exhibit of multiple high-performance housing solutions and a hub of extension education programs to advance resource-efficient, durable, and healthy housing for the southern climate and natural hazards. Do we have you on the line, Dr. Hanks Reichel? (laughs) Yes, we do. I am on the phone line, but for some reason, Zoom is having trouble launching. No problem. It worked yesterday. (laughs) We've got got pictures, so we'll put some photos up and uh, we'll we'll do the phone interview. It works just fine. Well, welcome. It's great to have you on board. I've been hoping we could get you on for some. I met you probably eight years ago and uh, down in Houston, and I always thought it would be wonderful to have you join us. So I'm really thrilled. Oh, I'm delighted to do this. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. 
Our pleasure. Can you tell listeners a little bit about um, what led to your interest in, in housing and health? Well, you know, I tell you, I'm I'm kind of an, an oddity. I'm I'm an odd sort of professor because I don't teach any classes or do research. I mean, it is such a cool job. I have a hundred percent extension appointment, which means I do educational outreach within my discipline to try and bring research-based information to the public. And I started focusing on housing, you know, in grad school more as the the consumer and socioeconomic perspective. Um, but when I became an extension housing specialist, you know, in in the eighties. You know, of course, we had disasters. We were doing disaster kind of work. In the 90s, I started doing energy-efficient design and construction and and retrofit programs, um, very big, successful programs. And then in the mid-90s, started working on indoor air quality. Then around the year 2000, that was when sustainability began to be a merging issue. And I I realized I really needed to beef up in, in the building science side of it because that's what pulls it all together and integrates all those things in in a systems approach. So, you know, I started um, learning and following and attending, you know, meetings and and was mentored by some great building science um, scientists out there. And now that is is, uh, pretty much the focus of our program to, and it was really the impetus for for developing our, our house resource center. And let's talk a little bit about the, the La House Resource Center. And, and you know, I, I was reading a story about you in, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the uh, publication, but um, it was a really interesting article. And they talked about how you had, you know, come up, with a, come up with this idea and then you were presenting it. But if you could tell listeners a little bit about how, how this all got started. <laughs> Well, you know, our, our chancellor had a meeting where he asked us about our program emphasis and where we thought it should be headed in the future. And, you know, we had to do it in like eight minutes. So I did my little spiel and, and I said, um, you know, and a hope and a dream for the future would be to do something kind of like the Florida House, which is a similar um, project that had already occurred in, in Sarasota, Florida, you know, it's sustainable housing and, and that integrates all these program areas and creates a, a real life-size tangible um, demonstration and, and exhibit for people at their teachable moment. You know, housing is the kind of thing people are only interested in when they're getting ready to make a change. You know, it's not like food or gardening or anything like that. So so he actually turned around and said, let's do it. Like, you know, everyone's jaws dropped to the floor uh, <laughs> because normally extension, we don't get to build anything, you know. So I asked him, I said, um, oh, you have a benefactor to do this after the meeting? He said, no, that's your job, fundraise. <laughs> So that's what we did. (laughs) So I had to learn fundraising too. But it was fantastic experience. We engaged so many people from all over the nation for both their expertise and their contributions. And um, La House was, was, um, you know, designed and, and envisioned over years. You know, it's it, vision statement, kind of its slogan is shape your home to shape your future. And that's really what it's all about. It's not about a house of the future. It's about applying, you know, the building science knowledge and, and technologies of today 
to create something, um, to create housing that has much more benefits than the status quo out there. And, and to integrate um, what, what we design, you know, decided from early on is we defined sustainability at the time as, as the balance and integration of five criteria, which really translates to the benefits. You know, one is resource efficiency with a big emphasis on energy efficiency. The second one is durability, which encompasses hazard resistance, you know, for whatever the local natural hazards are. The third is health, healthy home. And, of course, that includes indoor air quality in a big way, as well as the concept of universal design. And then those are our three educational objectives to integrate and balance. But we also added two other criteria that's practical and convenient. Because that is the doability and the marketability side of it, so so those others can can be done in a way to go mainstream. So that was the guiding criteria for creating La House, and and we did it as kind of a showcase exhibit demonstration house. It's not everything done one way. We show a whole range of solutions to integrate all those benefits, but at various price performance points. So. So the facility really is two buildings, you know, a house and, and what looks like a garage is really our condition, you know, sort of meeting space. And we have that it, up right now. We, yeah, we have a yeah, nice and it's built, it it, great. And, it, and it, you know, we built it with each wing is a different building system. So we used four different high-performance building systems that were really well-suited to our, our geography, you know, our, our conditions, our our construction types and, um, you know, our natural hazards and our climate, of course. So we have multiplicity of everything, 10 different kinds of windows and doors, five different attic configurations, three HVAC systems. So, it, you know, we have cutaways and, and signage throughout and models and exhibits. So there's just hundreds of things to see here. And it has been such a powerful educational tool that, we're so grateful we, we had the opportunity to do that. Well, as, as I understand it, while you were in the construction phase, um, a, a sudden and uh, devastating yeah. event. Uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about that? Exactly. We were in mid-construction when none other than Hurricanes Katrina and Rita actually, you know, devastated my state. And... Um, and, you know, in that mid-construction phase, it was like, you know, the, the structure was there with just house wraps and roofing underlayments, and that was it. And, oh. you know, of course, it held up beautifully during both events, but at that point, you know, the, uh, you, know you couldn't get a contractor. You know, they were needed by all of the, the people who were just, you know, we had over 200,000 severely damaged homes. And, and a third of the housing stock in the state was damaged. So it was horrendous. So we had to shift gears and do our educational outreach, you know, programs and duties to really help um, people with, uh, with the recovery. And, and then contractors were needed elsewhere. So we shifted gears. What we did is we ended up just putting uh, the roofing up. And we left it in mid-construction like that for two years, and we exhibited it that way because we already had all these hurricane and flood and termite-resistant features and the high-performance you know, high building systems fully exposed where you could see them. So it was almost 
eerie. It was at such a perfect stage wow. for the needs at that point. And we really had, we did an open house every Friday, and we had thousands of people come through during that two years of mid-construction phase. So, so um, actually in, in 08 is when we went back and completed it. I see. And of course, you know, there were challenges associated with that. But one of one of the cool things is, you know, these storms kind of tested some stuff, you know, and so we got to see, you know, what what really worked and basically, you know, it was it was unscathed and and um and then one of the things we did for termite resistance against the Formosan termite is we we one of the lines of defense is we built the structural outer shell with all borate treated wood materials where there was wood and um and that held up fine being exposed for two years like that it did not mold it did not stain it was it was amazing so um so that that went really well oh yeah we're back on a photo we have a couple and and unfortunately you can't see these but um the borate construction I, I think we've got a couple of nice photos here that show that greenish tint to the wood is that yeah. talking about yeah, there? That, that they just dye it to make it look different from regular wood the, the borates really don't impart a color but it's you know it comes from boron which is a natural you know sort of element that is also used in you know borax laundry booster and and in insect um you know low toxic insect repellents but it's 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 a wonderful, very eco-friendly, very people and pet-friendly, low toxicity kind of treatment that provides great deterrence and resistance to termites as well as decay fungi. And it's not really promoted or rated for for mold, but it, it makes the wood less hospitable. So it really, you know, tended to work for that too. And um, and so it's it's a great you know a great option out there. Now you can't use it for your outdoor woods because the or in ground contact because the the borates can leach out. But in the structure, you know, it's it's just a wonderful solution where we have a a, a really um, very high risk here. New Orleans is sort of the the hotbed of Formosan termites, but those termites are not like normal termites. They they can do major structural damage in one year, and they're really spreading throughout the South. So it is, it is something, I think, to be concerned about. And soil treatment, chemical soil treatment, is the only thing our code requires, and that's important and it's needed, but it's certainly far from foolproof and not permanent. So we, you know, one of the things that we preach, which is also important for hurricane resistance, is to have good you know, multiple lines of defense against those termites. Sure. What Cliff likes to refer to as the belt and suspenders approach. Cliff, I hear you. You got a call. Hi. Hi. Uh, A couple of, or one question and then actually a comment. In the one photo on the bottom, we can see where there's the greenish wood, and we can also see wood which appears to be untreated and which has a black, dark discoloration on it. Um. I'm just wondering why, um, you know, certainly there, there, there's no visual evidence on the green wood, but why was this other wood not treated? The, um, the interior partitions, um, one of the things that we demonstrated and used was finger joint studs. 
you know, so it's an efficient use of our, you know, local Southern Pine natural resource, but, but without the warpage, you know, that's straight and true. So we use that as kind of a cost compromise where you use your bore rates on the structural woods and then the non-structural woods, you know, we left untreated. Um, so I'm not, I can't see the picture you're seeing, so I'm not I'm sure exactly, you know, exactly but, what you're saying, but the interior woods were not were not borate treated and then there were a few elements that you couldn't get borate treated um such as the you know say the the wood i-beams and the open web joy some of these engineered wood products and so what we did is we did a penetrating borate solution spray on the the edge you know on the two feet ends of everything and actually, that has been shown to be like a lower cost alternative that is a very reasonable option um, that, in fact, I think in some other states that that's an approved, um, you know, uh, new construction method where you do the penetrating borate spray on just the bottom two feet of all of the all of the lumber in the, in the structure before you continue building. And that that provides you know, very good um, protection as well. Yeah, there's a, there's probably another benefit that people may not realize is borax is an, and borates are excellent flame retardants as well. Yeah, so I yeah. I mean, that. that's what's used in cellulose insulation right. mm-hmm. as the fire retardant. And then it has, you know, the added benefits of, of creating, you know, a deterrent to, um, to mold and then bugs don't like it you know, either. So um, it's, it's just, you know, it's just a, a, a wonderful additive to both um, insulation products as well as, as wood. Do you, do you recall at all approximately what the additional cost was for having the borate treated lumber? Well, at the time, you know, it, it was generally available, and I think the cost was about 25% more. But, of course, when the recession hit, you know, after, after that, the market for so many things just sort of dried up. And, and now it's actually harder to get, um, I think, in many places in the country, but except for places like Hawaii where they require um, – borate treat they require all construction with treated lumber or or non-lumber materials because the formosan termite's so bad over there mm-hmm. so wanna... it's still produced but it's a little bit harder to get now okay uh cliff did you have any others no good thanks okay i'm looking at um what appears to be your your foundation um, and there are four sections to it, and I don't see any vents in what appears to be uh, probably a crawl space. Um, do you have all? We, or all your, well, the house have? actually has has three different elevated foundation systems. Okay. Um, the main area of the house, you know, like the great room and 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 the main area, is actually a slab cap over a filled stem wall foundation. So you know, there's the 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 rebar concrete filled, you know, um, concrete block stem walls, you know, with, with some areas that, you know, specified by the engineer for structural support. And then it was filled with compacted soil and uh-huh. then, you know, the vapor barrier and then the, the slab cap on top of it. 
And that kind of system is done a lot in Florida. It's not done so much here, but it's very robust. You don't have to deal with crawl space issues. And, um, you know, and it's very strong and very secure and, and, and so on and so forth. And, but, it, but it's kind of pricey. You know, it's kind of expensive. So we have that as one of the system. And then in the master bedroom area, and we have the more traditional pier and beam. And in the master bath area, we have, um, you know, a concrete block stem wall with flood vents. So, yes, if you have a crawl space, it either needs to be open or if it's semi-enclosed, it must have flood vents within a foot of the ground, within a foot of grade, so that flood waters can flow through and not create um, undue pressures, you know, um, heavy pressures on the foundation that could cause structural failure. Gotcha. And and I'm wondering with your attics, you, you mentioned, I think, earlier that you had a couple different types of attic design. Can you talk a little bit about attic design and, and what your experiences have been? Sure. You know, down here in Louisiana, we don't do basements. And so, um, so uh, you know, the air conditioning system, the ductwork is typically in the attic. Um, and they're typically vented attics, you know, as, as traditional. And for us, that's kind of the hottest place on the planet, you know, to put your air conditioning system and your ductwork with leaky, poorly insulated ductwork. And so you know, studies have shown that we tend to lose, you know, 30 to 50 percent of all our cooling and, you know, some degree of heating um, through these leaky, poorly insulated ducts in hot attics. So um, we, we do have various configurations here. We do have, um, we show, you know, one of the things we have at my house is we show four ways to keep your ductwork within the conditioned space, within that thermal boundary, your insulation and air barrier boundary of the building. One of the ways is with the unvented semi-conditioned attic. And then we also use that as an, an additional exhibit room in the house where we show lots and lots of things there. But it is an unvented attic where um, there are, you know, the insulation is spray foam insulation at the roof line instead of the attic floor. And it um, has a little bit of conditioning and then it communicates with the living space. It's not isolated. You know, we keep it leaky between the the, the space in the living space and so that way we have the geothermal heat pump and all the duct work you know in there in the other wing of the house we do have a vented attic and in that vented attic we have radiant barrier roof decking as well as the vents and the radiant barrier roof decking really does a lot more to keep the attic cooler than otherwise but also we don't have the duct work in there we have a fur down um, under that ceiling so that the true ceiling is airtight and insulated and then below that is the ductwork. So we have some ductwork and a fur down the upstairs area and then between the floors of that two-story section we have open web joists that allow ductwork to run between them and we spray foam the band joists to make it insulated and airtight so it truly is um, within the thermal boundary, within the thermal envelope. And then the, the so we have a fur down, we have ductwork between the floors, 
we have the unvented attic and the fourth way that we show keeping the ductwork within the conditioned space. In the master bedroom, there is a vented attic, but with a, a uh, metal roof that is Energy Star rated with a cool color pigment that reflects heat waves more than color. So it looks like a dark brown, but it has the solar heat reflectance of a light color. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then that attic is vented, and it and the floor is decked, and we spray foam under the attic deck instead of on top of it, and embed the ductwork in that spray foam. So that's that's the fourth way that we do it. Interesting. Have you any preference now? Are all four working well, or did you have one that? Well, maybe- they all four working well. If you have a two-story house, you know the open web joists and running between the floors is is really ideal. The fur down, you know, of of having like a dropped ceiling, that is that is a, a pain for the contractor. Okay. It messes up your scheduling and your sequencing, and then trades tend to punch holes where they shouldn't. So it's really difficult to design that in and get it done right, even though it's not expensive. It's just it's just kind of a, a difficult challenge. And so in general, the unvented semi-conditioned attic is the most convenient way to do it if you don't have a two-story house. And so that that also provides you know, some added, you know, you can run all your HVAC and system in there where they want to run it anyway. They've got space, you know, to work. And it creates this nice, clean, climate-controlled attic space, you know, which people like. It it, it makes it much more accessible. Um, and then it has some fringe benefits in our part of the country because no soffit and ridge vent means in hurricanes no wind-driven water entry okay. into the attic causing you know water damage and problems so it it's actually a little more hurricane resilient uh, you know as well so it it costs more but it's very convenient it's very effective and it has some some added benefits but you got to do it right you know people don't realize that space does need a little bit you know, it needs to be semi-conditioned you need to consider it like a closet in your home Okay. I've got another, uh, we're going to break for halftime in just a minute here, but before we do, I uh, I got a text question from a listener. I want to make sure. uh, Did I hear correctly that the structural wood inside the structure was treated with only borate? Um, They aren't using the standard pressure treated wood on interior construction. Right. We use borate treated woods and, um, you know, in the shell, in the structural shell of the house, we use borate-treated studs. We use some laminated strand lumber that was borate-treated. We use borate-treated plywood sheathing. And um, and then what we did is we used a spray-applied borate treatment. And even, even the SIP section of the house, structural insulated panels, you know, borate treated foam in, in those SIPs and, um, and, and then borate treated um osb skins but but in the interior of the house we have untreated uh finger joint studs for the interior partitions and then the engineered wood joists um you know you couldn't get them treated so we just did a spray applied at the at the ends two feet at the ends of of each um 
each wood eye joist and open web joist. Okay. All right. We're going to break for halftime. We'll be back in 90 seconds with today's guest. Very interesting so far. Uh, Dr. Claudette Hanks Reichel. We'll be right back. Okay. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at healthyindoors.com. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Okay. And, and of course, I want to mention RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Doctor, we got Dr. Reichel back on the line here. I got a question on the um, exterior finishes here. Let's put the house back okay. up. I'm looking at, the, I, I believe it's the front, the main entrance here. And, and I'm finally in Zoom, so I can see what you're showing now. Uh, okay, great. <laughs> um, you've got a couple different types of exterior finishes. Can we talk a little bit about that and their, the importance and, and how they've held up for you? Actually, we, we have several different ones. You know, a house is just multiplicity. It looks like a cohesive house, but we actually wanted to use a lot of different um, you know, materials and, and, and assemblies all the way throughout to show various ways to, you know, achieve those benefits. But here on the house, you can see, um, you know, Ellis, we, we were required to make it look like LSU, to be congruent with LSU's traditional, you know, Italian Renaissance kind of Mediterranean architectural style. And so, so basically we had to have, you know, we had to have arches and, and, and towers okay. <laughs> so that, that was built into design. And as such, the stucco, you see, we, we actually demonstrate two types of stucco on the front porch is actually an EFAS, but a water-managed EFAS system. And we, we actually have cutaways on the front porch so you can see how it was layered. Hmm. And then the same with the stucco. The, the, the two-story west wing is advanced framing. So it's two by six, 24 on center. So we have, you know, five and a half inches of insulation, you know, between those studs. So we achieve our R19 or 20 that way. So we didn't need exterior insulation, so we just used conventional, um, you know, conventional cement-based three-coat stucco. But at the time, um, people were really not handling it right where you could still have moisture problems. So our, our cutaways show 
a sloped weep screed, which nobody was using at the time, as and then having the two layers behind the real stucco. One is the weather-resistive barrier, and then the second layer is actually a bond break with stucco. So a cutaway shows that, and then right across the corner on the front porch is a cutaway that shows the drainable EFAS system where you have exterior insulation, but we have um, where, you know, vertical, um, you know, ad adhesion and, and a plastic lath instead of metal. So water that gets through it can drain down and out through a slope weep screen. So we show moisture management, which is really important in our rainy climate as well. We also have brick veneer on, on those two ends, and the brick has um, mortar uh, dropping, um, you know, it has systems to prevent mortar droppings from clogging the, from clogging the weep holes. Mm -hmm. And we show two ways to do that, and it's vented at both the top and the bottom, so for really good drainage and, and pressure release. Then on the back side, which you can't see in this image, we have fiber cement siding oh. as well, and and that is installed over a drainage mat, over um, you know on one side over the sheathing, on the other side of um, uh, foil face rigid foam to add more R value to the two by four section. So that middle section of the house, the living room, is two by four, but enhanced for higher performance. And we, we do that one way in front with EFAS and in back with, with the fiber cement and the, um, the foil face foam. The, the, the left side of the house, kind of the east wing, that's built with structural insulated panels with SIPs that are all borate treated. And so, you know, each wing is, is a different building system. Now the teaching center, you know, which is the garage building to the left, that is built with insulating concrete form building system. Very robust, very strong, hurricane resistant, energy efficient and flood hardy. And then it has kind of a synthetic stucco system that is a little more impact resistant. Yeah, you can see the insulating concrete forms um, top left there, yep. and then and then um, the bottom pictures. You can see the advanced framing section um, going up, where it's all stack frame, 24 on center, and then to the top right. That's where you see um, you know the elevated foundation system before um, the stem walls before the soil was was installed. Gotcha. Okay. Now let's, uh, I want to make, uh, we could do this for two weeks in a row here for sure, but um, <laughs> I've got a lot of other questions on, on La House, sure. but um, I want to make sure I focus on the, um, the resistance, the, the hurricane resistance and the, the fire and, and flood resistance. Oh, yeah. And if you could tell listeners a little bit about some of the features that, that you're recommending for those areas. Well, you know, the number one loss from hurricanes is roof damage and, and the water damage that occurs when the roof doesn't, you know, doesn't withstand it. And so that should be people's number one priority. And, and back before Katrina, it was hard to get, um, you know, hurricane-resistant roofing, but now it is readily available. You can get wind-tested shingles. They're architectural shingles, but they're not just normal architectural shingles. They're specially made, and they need to 
follows um, the, the manufacturer specs for high wind in order for it to work. But a Class H shingle doesn't cost that much more than an, another good quality architectural shingle. But it's been wind tested to 150 miles per hour. So that, that's huge. I mean, that, that's wonderful and powerful. And so we definitely recommend, um, you know, class uh, G or H wind tested shingles, depending on where you are. And then that on top of what, what we call a secondary moisture barrier. Instead of just your normal roofing felt, you know, use something that, because that, the, the, the underlayment under the shingles are really your main water protection you know after the the big water that the shingles shed and if you do lose some shingles that can really help prevent damage so you can either tape the seams with a roof approved tape and then use a synthetic underlayment which is very tear resistant on top of that or you can go cover the whole roof with a peel and stick membrane you know like like it tends to be used for water damming up north. Mm -hmm. And so either of those are very robust systems. And then the other thing that we suggest is when re-roofing, you know, do those things, but also reinforce the attachment of your decking with ring shank nails. Ring shank nails have much better pull-out resistance than either nails or screws and never use staples to attach that roof decking. So that's, that's the biggie. You know, if you're in a very high wind area, like a coastal area, then of course windborne debris protections are important to prevent broken windows. And and the point of a broken window is not is not to the point of windborne debris protection, whether it's hurricane shutters or impact rated window units, is to keep from having a big hole. It's not to keep from having a broken window, it's to protect the structure. Because in very high wind events, if you get a big hole from either losing the garage door or a broken window, that's when the wind pressures can build up high enough inside to amplify the exterior pressures and cause structural damage to the whole house. So that's important in very high wind areas. But for most people, the roof is the biggie. And then the second thing are the soffits. Um, a lot of people tend to use just, you know, um, suspended soffit materials like vinyl soffits, just suspended in a little J-channel. And mm-hmm. we recommend structural soffits. You know, they can be perforated, fiber cement or whatever, but structural and, and fastened to the framing because those tend to very easily get sucked out or blown in. And then you get tons of water in the attic and ceiling collapse from that so those are the biggies for wind that i would suggest to people what about flood let's let's go over that was perfect by the way flood is is a hazard that that you know flood disasters happen almost everywhere in the nation and and they are getting worse and they're more common and we cannot rely on the flood map on the fema flood map that is a flood insurance rate map it is not a really good um, determination of where floods will and won't happen. Uh, we just had, in my part of the state of Louisiana, middle south Louisiana in 2016, we had our worst disaster in history 
with flooding of over 140,000 homes. It didn't hit the media much because it wasn't a named storm, but it was devastating. And then last year, the Houston area had, you know, topped it with even more flooding. 70%, about three quarters of all the people who flooded were not in a flood zone. This happens all the time. So, So we say don't just rely on that, but if it's any way possible that you could flood then first of all if you're building elevate two to three feet above whatever the flood elevation is for that cushion of safety but if you have existing homes um, we really encourage doing whatever you can um, that FEMA calls wet flood proofing but I like to use the term flood hardy and and because people understand it better the idea is elevate what you can, like your air conditioning compressor, your water heater, you know, elevate things that, that, that you can elevate to avoid damages above the potential flood level, and then use flood damage resistant materials for your, your finishes, you know, your floorings and, and so forth. And then the third thing, if you can, is, um, particularly like if you flood once and you're going to restore or you're doing some renovation or something, consider consider putting things back in a way where it's washable, drainable, and dryable. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the big disaster and issue that we see after major floods is it takes so long for people to be able to get back in their homes because they're all in competition with each other for good contractors and for materials. And and then the scam artists and the lousy contractors swoop in from everywhere and they take advantage of people in their desperation and they take their money and leave them, you know, with shoddy, unfinished work and their money gone. Um, it, it, it's a horrible tragedy. And so that's why, you know, I have kind of been on the speaker circuit lately, really promoting the concept of flood harding. And the idea there is you have a washable, drainable, dryable wall and floor assembly so that if it floods, yeah, flood water comes in, but all you have to do is wash, dehumidify, dry, and then that's it. Move back in. So if you have that kind of system, you don't have to depend on contractors that are in scarce supply and materials that are hard to get and the huge, huge economic burden that that creates. People could get back in their home in weeks instead of a year and a half, like we're seeing here. So that's kind of my my little soapbox in terms of floods. And the other... The other question would be on fire resistance. You're going to be doing a presentation for HUD called Wind, Flood, and Fire Damage Defenses. Um, can you talk a little bit about fire defense? Right. What, what we're talking about there is wildfire, you know, because the big disasters that have happened lately have been hurricanes, floods, and wildfire, you know, particularly in, in the California area. And though, you know, my state, we're, we're not really, you know, a, a wildfire place. I, I did work with HUD on their Rebuild Healthy Home Book, and so that was included. The, the biggies, if you live in a place where there could be wildfires, is, you know, first of all, try to eliminate all the combustibles. Don't let, 
um, you know, leaves and so forth pile up in your gutters and your roofs, clean them out, have gutter toppers, and don't use cellulose-based mulch around your home. You know, try to keep non-combustible kinds of of mulch at least, you know, three feet surrounding your home. Of course, use Class A fire-rated roofing, but something else people don't often think of is a lot of the risk happens when embers enter into the attic through the Mm. vent. And so adding just simple metal screening that is, you know, one-fourth to one-eighth inch, you know, holes can... Um, to any soffit vents and, um, you know, as well as any, you know, gable vents or ridge vents or whatever you have can prevent embers from entering in and starting a fire. So those, those are the, the biggies. I mean, there are some additional, more robust kinds of sightings and things that people can do, but, but those simple things, um, you know, can, you know, or, or something to consider in any place that has any risk of wildfire. And while we're talking wildfire, we've got a, a, a photo of the, the house up here. I want to ask a little bit about the landscaping. Um, maybe you could comment on the landscaping. I I can see how this would be less fire, uh, less more fire resistant. I mean, you've got the, the stone walls there that kind of uh, would be blocking some of the, you know, and then it's very clean and clear. Uh, you don't have any. It, it, exactly. Now, you know, wildfire really wasn't our, obje- our objectives, but um, but one of the things that you couldn't really see from the picture is that we don't have flower beds or, or mulch of any type within three feet of the house. We That's... have these rock beds, you know, like decorative, um, you know, big, rocks all around the house and the our main reason for that is so that there's no food for termite to attract termite to the house oh, and okay. so and but it also helps with drainage like so that way we can have runoff from the roof because we have at least two foot overhangs all the way around and it runs off into the rock beds and it drains easily and we don't get any splashback onto the siding and um and then there's no cellulose material within three feet of the house. So it's one of those termite, you know, defenses as well. And, um, and it, you know, it helps with everything. People tend to plant right up against the house. And, and then they have all this cellulose, so it's an attractive termite. And then the mulch over the years build up, and then it creates, you know, a, a real pathway for termites. And then the plants keep the house wet and they and you have more of a mildew issue so it's just you know problem after problem when you plant too close so everything we have a lot of plants in these raised beds and everything's at least three feet from the house um you know with with drainage away and and that's you know drain slope and drain slope and drain that that is kind of just by design you know a free way to help prevent prevent problems and if you have those two foot to three foot overhangs um everything is going to last longer your your doors your windows your siding everything will uh last longer stay cleaner and it's an energy efficiency benefit so hip roofs are more aerodynamic for wind and they give you nice shade um, for energy savings and comfort all the way around and they shed water away so modest slope roofs hip roofs 
and two or foot or greater overhangs have lots of advantages. Well, another advantage, if I'm not mistaken, is you don't have gutters and downspouts, so there's not the maintenance on those, and for some people... Right. Can... We do have some, but they're strategic. We don't need them all around. We we actually use gutters um, and downspouts primarily for rainwater harvesting, you know, and that's one of the sustainability issues. So um, you can't see in this picture, but there's a cistern to the right that collects rainwater, you know, from that side of the house, which is used for irrigation. And then on another side, we collect um, roof rainwater, and it goes in a pipe underground to a rain garden out back. So um, um, that master site plan was the original master site plan. We've made a lot of changes since then. So, you know, everything everything's a bit different at this point. But but there is, you know, a rain garden that, that uses some of the, the water. You know, one of the things that we do is stormwater management, where we try and keep all the water that falls on the ground on the ground and not have it run off and and contribute to non-point source pollution. Are, are you located on the main campus or just off campus? We or? are. We, we're right on the edge of campus. So we're within the campus, but right on the edge. And, oh, man, we have the most awesome location. We were here first, but now this is where all the athletic expansion happens. So since we built the house, the new baseball stadium is right across the street. We're right next to the golf course. They have, you know, obstacle courses and, and soccer further on. And then they built tennis right next to us on the other side. So, man, this is a super exposure. <laughs> I already wanted to visit. Now you really made it tough. I'm to go okay, we've got a, a couple minutes. Well, we got about five minutes left. Yeah, a little okay. more. I've got a couple other questions, and then I got a text question from a listener. I'll do that uh, toward the end here, but I want to make sure I get this question in about the healthy housing course, um, the essentials of healthy housing. It used to be seven essentials of healthy housing, and you've added an eighth, and I know you were part of helping uh, revise that curriculum. Can you talk a little bit about the eighth essential of healthy well, housing? The, the principles, the eight principles of a healthy housing, you know, originally said, like you said, were developed by the National Center for Healthy Housing. And, and you know, we have been a, a partner with them for a number of years. But the eighth one was added, and it's ca they call it, you know, thermally controlled. But, you know, frankly, nobody knows what that means, you know, in the general public. And so I like to say, you know, instead of saying keep it thermally controlled, keep it comfortable. And, and what that essentially is, is um, that means um, doing things so that you can keep the, the housing unit from having extreme temperatures, either too hot or too cold in winter or too hot in summer. And, and so that means a, a level of energy efficiency so that people can afford to have healthy um, temperature and humidity controls because that prevents hypothermia and and heat exhaustion in severe weather and particularly when the power is outage so that's that's what that one's all about and it i think it's important because these days um you know as we raise the bar of of energy efficiency and the codes and 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 the, you know, the status quo is changing as, as our homes become tighter and better insulated, more energy efficient. It's the building science side of it is so important to prevent 
indoor air quality problems. You know, having a tight home actually allows you to have even better air quality if you ventilate properly and because you have control instead of just relying on, you know, haphazard leaks. But you need to really understand the moisture and air dynamics as well as the heat dynamics and, and get it right. There's a much smaller margin of error. You know, it's easier to screw it up. And so energy efficiency and healthy home really do go hand in hand. It, it can make everything better, but it must be done right. Okay, Cliff, I know you, you got a question here, and then I want to talk a little bit about humidity uh, following your question. Thanks, okay. Joe. Uh, Doctor, I'm wondering, uh, you talked about all the different things that are unique with the home and, and so on and so forth. I was wondering if there's a link online that we can direct people to that, you know, um, you know, lists the different things that were done in the home and, and why they were done. Yes, you know, uh, we do have a La House Resource Center website. I mean, the easiest way to find is just Google La House Resource Center and you'll get to the home page. And then on the home page, you know, if you scroll a little bit below, that's just sort of the top banner. If you scroll down a little bit, you'll see three portals, one about La House as the resource center, one that's called My House, My Home, which is kind of the, the, the entry point to get tons and tons of articles written really for, for laymen, you know, for the consumer-friendly kind of information um, about how to achieve high-performance housing and all kinds of topics. And then on the right is for housing professionals, and that kind of takes to some resources for them and the seminars and the trainings that we offer. But the one about La House Resource Center, if you click on that, then you can keep navigating to the building features. And we also have a, um, you know, a photo gallery which shows a lot of the construction features. And, and another thing I want to mention is we do have a YouTube channel. And in that YouTube channel, we have produced like 7 to 10 minute video about each of the building systems in La House that talks about, you know, its attributes and you kind of see it go up from foundation, you know, to completion and, and why some things were done the way they were done. So you can see a short video, you know, a seven to 10 minute video on each of the building systems. Um, and then we have one where they're kind of all put together and, and plus the foundation system. So those are available as well. And then also in the YouTube channel, we have kind of a playlist of a whole bunch of short videos which serve as kind of a virtual tour guide of La House. And, um, you know, if you come to La House, we have these point of feature signs and we have little QR codes on them which link to these videos basically of me doing, you know, my my tour guide deal, you know, <laughs> but there's about 40 something of them and each of them about a minute long. And so, oh, there I am kind of doing Ooh, it. Doing looks like you're being a tour guide there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll put the link, um, those links into Cliff's blog. Cliff writes a blog for each show and then we'll run it by you and make sure we have the right links. Um, okay, but, great. Uh, this, is, this has been really a, a lot of fun. I, I didn't really get to the term resiliency much although i think ah. you've been talking about is resilience can we uh maybe we can wrap it up with that and then i do have a text question from a listener 
Okay. Well, resilience has kind of, you know, been been my my number one gig and my claim to fame around the country these days because being from Louisiana, I've sort of become the face of disaster. And so, you know, not not really the happiest kind of face, but what resilience means to me, the way I define it is the ability to bounce back quickly after a disaster. And and so that means if your home is is somewhat, you know, fairly damage resistant, but also put together in a way where it's easy to clean up and restore, that is so so valuable and and that's what develops resilience you know the ability to bounce back which means you can quickly get back into your home and resume your life um what happens most of the time is people do not have resilient homes and then they end up um being displaced and having to find other housing accommodations for a year to a year and a half. That's how long it's taken most people to get back in their homes after these recent floods. Um, and their savings are depleted. And even those with flood insurance, you know, have major economic issues, but only about a, a fourth of the, of the, you know, flood survivors ha- even have that. So, you know, that's why I, I think, you know, one of the things you said, you know, what needs to be resilient people or, or buildings. Well, I tell you, if, if the building, if the home is resilient, the person needs a lot less personal resilience um, gotcha. to be able to, to get through it. And so I think that is key. I mean, personal resilience is a personal quality and I'm not a psychologist, but, um, you know, but it's tough. It, it's tough because the stress lasts a really long time and it's a huge ordeal. You know, I've seen what it does to people and it's just, it's just really sad. So if we could just see the value in investing in resilience, you know, as well as good indoor air quality and, and energy efficiency, it gives the homeowner the power. It gives the homeowner the control over their future. And, and that's really what everybody wants. And before we go, I, I don't know if we can answer this or not. We'll give it a shot. Um, we're dealing with a, this is a listener, uh, Joe, dealing with a rock slash mortar exterior on a structure that's seven years old. There are portions of the wall that are leaking, but others are not. The exterior was erected without a drip planes are I'm not sure what the drip plane means where the rock mortar is flush with the type okay there's no drainage plane there um, the dilemma is to identify the areas that are leaking to the interior and hopefully avoid removing the exterior at very high cost do you think it's feasible to waterproof the structure or does it have to come come off that's a tough one well, I mean, that, that is a tough one. It really needs someone to actually do an inspection, see how, how severe it is. But, I mean, generally trying to do a sealant on the outside, it, it, it could provide a temporary help, but it could also, you know, have an effect on, um, you know, on, on the ability of the material to, um, you know, to dry. When, when it does yep. kind of get wet and so so i would suggest if if anything were used it should have it should you know stop liquid water but 
still be permeable to water vapor. And, and it's a, you know, sealing masonry can be an issue for freeze thaw if you're in a cold climate. We don't really have that issue, but, but other places might. So, I mean, you could try that, but I suspect in many cases, and from what I've seen, you know, from, from the people who do the forensic kind of work is, is generally, you know, it needs to come off. Yeah. And, and that 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 weather resistive barrier and drainage gap, you know, and the flashing, you know, needs to happen. Um, the other thing you want to do is make sure that your interior surfaces are very, very permeable so that if water that gets in can readily dry through to the inside and in summertime, you know, where you have air conditioning. So make sure that you just have drywall and latex paint and nothing else on the walls. Um, but you know, it, it just depends on the severity of the leakage. Well, it's a seven-year-old home too. It seems that might still be depending on what state you're in. That might still be within the time limit where uh, the builder right. may have to come back and help you out with that. But I, I, really, I tell well, you, one of the most valuable resources sources of information out there is um, you know Building Science Corporation's website because they have been a, a you know produced a lot of stuff from you know Department of Energy's Building America program, but also they just tend to be very generous with their information and articles. So, BuildingScience.com, you know www.BuildingScience.com, is a, a a keyword searchable database kind of thing of just hundreds and hundreds of articles on so many topics and I know you know that kind of topic is is well addressed um, that's Dr. Joe Stebrook who's you know a very well-known building scientist and um, you know kind of a source of where I've learned you know much you know most of what I know about wow. moisture and building science yeah, we'll go another back great resource is the Building America Solution Center it yes. has been revamped and extremely valuable, you know, user-friendly source on building guidelines and on all kinds of, you know, the whole range of topics. And so um, Googling, you know, Building America Solution Center, fantastic, fantastic resource as well. And I'll, I'll add one, the EPA, for this particular uh, situation, EPA's Moisture Control Guide also would be uh, a good source, but... None of them. DOE is working more toward solutions to existing problems, but most of the resources are, you know, uh, unfortunately, it's how we should have built it in the first place. Uh, Right. I mean, their program was really focused on, you know, raising the bar in new construction, trying to increase, you know, approaching zero energy, you know, net zero energy, but and, and they still do, but in the past maybe four or five years, they've, they've really added the retrofit, you know, deep energy retrofit, you know, retrofit to their research program. And so there's, there's a lot of content uh, relevant to that now, too. Hey, we got started a little bit late. Can you stay an extra minute? I have one more question I'd love oh, to ask. Sure. Okay, you're in a a hot, humid climate, and I know at least one of our listeners, I noticed John was on, and um, John Lapoterre, and he's real big on on supplemental dehumidification, and I'm wondering how you, especially during these swing seasons when you don't necessarily maybe need air conditioning, but you do need dehumidification, how do you handle that at La House? 
I, you know, I'm, I'm big on that too. You know, the, the, the more energy efficient the house, um, the less, you know, the whole point of doing that is, is you develop a very low heating and cooling load. So when your house gets very energy efficient, you don't need much cooling in terms of temperature. You know, it, you, you don't have the heat gains and, and, and so forth. But the humidity load does not diminish by being energy efficient. Um, and, and so it seems to increase because it's just not diminished like everything else is. And, and so really, you're going to have to do something to add your latent capacity, you know, your, to add your dehumidification capacity to whatever you're doing. You can't rely just on you know, a single stage air conditioner to do it like you can in a home that needs tons of air conditioning all the time. You're just not going to get enough run time, particularly in spring and fall, you know, in mild weather times where we're still very humid, but we, we don't need cooling. And so there are various ways to do that. Here at La House, we show, um, you know, we advocate the concept of build tight and then vent right. So we do have mechanical, um, controlled amount, and filtered fresh air ventilation. And at this point, um, we've done it different ways at different times, but right now we have a ventilating dehumidifier, which is sort of the ultimate solution. Mm-hmm. And so we have a high, a high capacity ventilating dehumidifier that brings in the fresh air, mixes it with indoor air, you know, in the prescribed amount, the prescribed CFMs for the house, and then um, dehumidifies it first and then adds it into, you know, the central system, you know, the central supply system. So so that's the configuration we use in the house. In, in the teaching center, we have kind of a lower cost option. We have just, uh, you know, a, a flow control system to bring in fresh air into the return side of the air handler, you know, the air conditioner. And then we have a separate standalone portable, but a semi-high capacity portable um, dehumidifier like people might put in their basements. Mm-hmm. And we just have it on, on, on a cart in the foyer, um, you know, where with a drain line. And so something like that could be put in a laundry room. It could be in a, in a louver door closet, you know, as long as you have enough circulation space and a drain line and it's not where the noise is an issue, then that provides the supplemental dehumidification whenever it's needed. So when the air conditioner is providing enough dehumidification, the dehumidifier doesn't run. But when the air conditioner doesn't do it, the dehumidifier runs. And so we show a small portable one. We show that one, which is a little step up. And then we have two whole house dehumidifiers on exhibit. The one that's being used is a ventilating dehumidifier. And the other one is designed to where it only dehumidifies the indoor air, but distributes it in the central air system. So it, it, it kind of, you know, catches up to things. And then the, the outdoor air just has the flow controller. And, and a filter system into the return. So that's the way we used to do it, but we've kind of upgraded to the ventilating dehumidifier. Other oh, sure. options for people are, you know, the truly variable capacity air conditioners, you know, with, with you know, variable capacity compressors can provide better dehumidification in the shoulder seasons, but they cost as much 
as having two separate pieces of equipment. You know, just going with like a two-speed air conditioner and a dehumidifier, you know, would cost about the same and give you even better control. So, you know, either one, either one can work. But dehumidification is, is vital. But dehumidification is important. So the more energy, the more you raise the bar of energy efficiency, um, particularly in a humid climate, the more you need to give attention to supplemental dehumidification one way or another. Yep. And the tighter you make the building in the first place and more energy efficient, the less uh, the less you should have to worry about it when it's coming from the outside. Uh, you know, we also generate a lot of our own humidity, but uh, fantastic. Well, you see, that's the, the major source. You know, in our climate, the fresh air brings in added humidity. So we do need to really control the amount. And, and frankly, um, you know, and, and according to, you know, some others, in the building science arena, in our climate, you know, fresh air ventilation should be designed to meet code, you know, CFM standards, but adjustable. So you can actually, you know, adjust it down from that. And if you have good source control, that can suffice. Um, but if you need more, you can adjust it to to that level. And so, you know, we, we encourage and advocate that. In fact, we... Um, we amended our codes in Louisiana to make sure that, you know, if mechanical ventilation was required, you know, because the air tightness level was to that point, that it be uh, an adjustable system. Okay. That, this has been so much fun. I, I really appreciate you joining us. Cliff, do you have any final comments or, or questions? I do not. Uh, I tell you, I want to. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And, and I, before we go, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? Oh, you know, this is this has been such a pleasure. You know, basically, I just, you know, the, the only other comment that that I can think of is, you know, when it comes to housing, it's just amazing to me, and and it's kind of sad that people will accept the lowest common denomin denominator. You know, like a, a code codes create a, a, a level of quality, but it's like, you know. Where else do we accept something, you know, uh, something where where the producer says, oh, we've done it this way for 30 years. So <laughs> that's the reason to keep doing that way. And where else do we accept, you know, the, the minimum, you know, required by law? We right. accept that with our homes, and, and we really shouldn't. So if people just knew that you could get, better benefits and higher performance with just, you know, by, by providing that consumer demand and having a little knowledge, you know, that's our mission. That's what we are trying to do to help people see what is possible. It's still practical to achieve. You know, we, we all deserve healthy, resilient, energy efficient homes. And, and, you know, that, that that's my mission. That's what we're trying to, to help people do through an educational process and i appreciate the opportunity to be on your program and and to help you know send that message a little further so thank you so much well thank you dr claudette hanks reichel it was a, a true pleasure to get to talk to you a little bit more today i look forward to seeing you in the future maybe at summer camp or something like that oh that would be great i do plan to be there Absolutely. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. 
Claudette Hanks Reichel. Thanks again for joining us. And, of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick at the controls. John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Hey, check out the, the YouTube uh, video we'll put together of this show. Of course, you can get our uh, podcasts on Podbean. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Actually, I'll be coming to you uh, live from the Indoor Air Quality Association's Mid-Atlantic Conference. You can uh, get some information on that from, uh, I'll have to put it in the blog or maybe put something up on the website. Anybody that's interested, that'll be over in uh, New Jersey up at, uh, I think it's toward Princeton. Wei Tang is running that, the Mid-Atlantic Conference for the Indoor Air Quality Association. I think if you just Google it, you'll find it. And then uh, in two weeks, I'll be coming to you from Texas. So, Cliff, we've got a lot of of interesting shows coming up. And at the end of the month, uh, we've got another one. Uh, Nick Hurst from the EPA Indoor Air Plus program is joining us. So uh, a great month of June here, and I look forward to seeing everybody next week on the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.